bet you you will enjoy it. You know what? Something else that I think you guys will enjoy is Blue Chew. You see, Blue Chew is an online service that de delivers the same active ingredients woo, as Viagra, but in the chewable form. Now, so, so people who need that, you know, I guess you can use it. So, wow. But, uh, I don't know. So, like, I guess if you, if you want that enhancement or whatever, you know, you can just use Blue Crew. Now, <laughs> I guess I'm going to get in trouble. But anyway, anyway um, wow. So, uh, support for this podcast comes from State Farm. What is going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Process Potables. My name is Dan. This is episode 80 of Process Potables, titled The First Half Eastern Champs, and I am joined by Last Out Media, Sixers beat writer, and friend of the podcast, Rob Manoff, joining me. Rob, it's Friday night. Sixers are first place in the Eastern Conference going into the All-Star break. Big win over the Jazz on Wednesday, and... I'm I'm not ashamed to talk about blue chew or male enhancement or anything, and you know, I I just want to make sure that everybody knows that you know blue chew. I can do a hell of an ad read, and and I have no shame. You're you're more than welcome here. Uh, my bad. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I thought you were gonna play it. So, I did play um, it. I told you. Oh, I, was I missed it. it. I missed <laughs> it. My bad. I wasn't paying attention. But yeah, uh, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay away from ad reads for a little bit. Talking, talking up my game a little bit, but um, I mean, I can see you as a Bluetooth guy. You know, <laughs> I, you have the voice for it. I have the vo I have the voice for needing male enhancement. Yeah. <laughs> well, a sweet transition. You know, who doesn't need any uh, male enhancement is the Philadelphia 76ers who finished the first half of the season well, in we, first place. We don't know that. Well, true. I guess we are probably going to talk about them getting some male enhancement in in another degree. <laughs> But before we kind of recap our thoughts on the first half of the season and project what we, we think going forward as we hope that they're ready to make a, a real title run for the first time in the quote-unquote process era, I do really want to take a couple minutes to break down that huge win over the Utah Jazz and, and try and look at it from both sides, from the, oh my God, we had such a great time you know watching this and, and winning and dunking on Jazz fans for two days versus the, you know, what really happened here and, you know, was there maybe any credit? credibility to some of the crying about how the end of that game went and everything. So obviously uh, the Sixers win in overtime, 131 to 123. It took an Embiid uh, like step back three pointer to tie the game and send it to overtime. And then the Sixers just dominated the OT and it, it really wasn't close. Tobias Harris was a big closer for the Sixers in his first game back after missing some time with the knee contusion. 
Rob, your initial thoughts when this one was over on on how you thought this game went for the Sixers. They trailed for most of the game. It, it honestly didn't feel that close for a while. And every time you looked at the score, you, uh, you know, I thought, I'm like, how is this not, you know, an 18 to 22 point game? It kind of feels like nothing's going their way. But every time you turn around, they're, they're kind of hanging in it. But it never felt that close. And all of a sudden it's tied and then they dominate the overtime. It was a very strange game, but one that obviously gives them so much momentum going into the break. Um, so the game to me didn't make any sense. Like when you get it, when they make what they make, 21 more three pointers than the Sixers did. Like it, it was absolutely insane that they were able to stay in it. And as somebody who prided myself on not getting too high or getting too low, um, I think after that game, I, I kind of sat there and I was like, this, this is it. Like, if you're going to do something, like, this is the year. Um, there, there was, like, four times in the fourth quarter they would bring the score to within three, and Bogdanovich or some other guy on the Jazz would just nail a three, and you're like, dude, the game's over. Like, they're not yep. coming back from that. And they just kept coming back. And, I, like, I don't know. I'm still on cloud nine. Well, yeah, I know you said that you tend not to get too high or too low, and you know, not not to get anybody in trouble here. But I think me and you both might be a, a little more high than low right <laughs> well, now. Ain't gonna get me in fr- trouble. Fr- I'm good. It's Friday night, baby. So uh, the Jazz made 21 threes total. The Sixers only made eight. So yeah, I mean, it was a huge discrepancy yeah. as far as three pointers. I mean, you do the math there. That's a, a 13 differential. They're three points each. They scored 39 more points from us from three, and the Sixers still won. And this it kind of, this is the, the perfect example of that kind of age old question we've been hearing for a while is and and it all kind of comes back to Joel Embiid and I think that that this is kind of like the overall storyline for the first season is the big question always was you know in a league that's now moving away from a traditional center and a league that shoots this many threes can you build a team around a center that's like your best player and your primary scorer and things like that. And for the past few years, we've seen flashes from Joel Embiid where you thought maybe they could, but when it push really came to shove, you know, in playoff series against Boston or Toronto, it, it really felt like that was where you were learning that, no, you, you really can't do it. Maybe you can have regular season success, but you can't really make the run. And, all things aside, whether you talk about Doc Rivers or Daryl Morey or, you know, a different roster construction, the the real primary difference in this season, if you're like weighing what matters more, none of those things on their own are more important as far as I'm concerned than just the growth of Joel Embiid. He has actually gotten so much better than he already was that he has now made you decide that, yes, you know what, you can win that way. So even in a game where you make 13 less three-pointers, you outscore them by eight points because he's so dominant in the mid-range, because he gets to the line so much, and you're just hoping that you get enough you know, looks from inside out to hang with teams that are going to shoot this much. And, you know, they've been doing it for an entire half of the season so far. So I think that that gives you the answer that yeah, it, it, it is potentially possible. Did you, uh, do you remember after the Celtics series? I think Joel was like quoted saying like, um, it's obviously you can't build around that meaning his low post play. Mm-hmm. And, um, Originally, I, I kind of ran with it, and I was like, all right, maybe Joel's saying, like, you need a wing, or he they think that Ben should be, like, the, the primary offensive or whatever. 
And you can see the difference now this season. And I think what he meant was he can't have his back to the basket all the time. Meaning like he, he needs to, you know, play quicker. He needs to, you know, spot up. If he wants to be that guy, he had to expand his game more than what it already was. And it, he played really well. Um, and I think that goes back. Apparently him and Drew Hanlon have been trying to work on this part of his game forever. And, um, you know, it's just something like between him working with them and then, uh, you know, maybe the Celtics series realizing that he can't just bully his way all the time. Like there's got to be other parts to his game and, you know, just the maturity factor. Like he, this guy's putting it all together and you, you're right. You can build around a center like him now. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful way to put it because I think that's uh, it's a little bit more in depth than I think a lot of the conversation inevitably was because a, a lot of the conversation around the first few years of his career and you even heard it from guys like Shaq and every annoying person that called in the Philadelphia sports radio was oh like he's got to get down in the post more and he's gotta he's gotta get to the rim more and it's like you know that that's what everybody knows to take away from him. He's seven foot, incredibly skilled. That's what teams are going to focus on. And they're going to allow him to shoot his mid range. They're going to allow him to shoot for three. But this season, he's just said, fine, you're going to allow me to do it. I'm going to get so good at it that you're no longer going to want me to do it. For the first half of the season, he's shooting 53% on what would be categorized as long twos, which everybody knows is the worst shot in basketball. If you're shooting 53%, it's not a bad shot at all. It's a great shot. You'll take anything that you're doing at 53% in the NBA, you know, going up against the best. But even looking at his three-point shooting, you know, like you said, when he said, uh, you know, this may show that you can't really, you know, build around a guy like me, which I'm sure was tongue-in-cheek in a way, too, and he was obviously super depressed. But, you know, he went out and proved, you know, he's shooting 41.6% from three. And everybody yeah. was, was kind of saying, like, hey, like, so, well, I should say some people wanted him to shoot more, even when he was shooting, you know, 30 to 33 percent. And some people were saying, oh, he's lazy and he's just chucking them. But no one's complaining now when he's shooting over 41 percent from three. And obviously, you know, those aren't empty numbers when you consider he hit a ridiculous, you know, run back to the line. Someone in his face shot to send the game to overtime on Wednesday against the team with the best record in the NBA through the first half of the season. So there's there's so much to be said about what Joel Embiid has done and. And like I said, you know, I named several other factors that are that are definitely important as well. But I, I don't think any of them compare to just the growth of Joel Embiid. And right now he is actually the favorite for MVP as far as Vegas is concerned. He would be the first big man since Dirk in 0607 to win it and the first actual center to win it in two decades. So if he's able to keep it up, which by all accounts, it looks like he can, he's about to get you know, seven days off, which is huge at this point. And, you know, you look at the second half of the season, it's not another 41 games. It's another 36 games. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a little less wear and tear, hopefully over that. They've they've found sometimes to get him out of the lineup. And the Sixers have been uh, pretty fortunate, too. Other than that short little COVID incident hovering around that Nuggets game that shouldn't have been played, you know, every starter's missed, like, a game or a couple games, but nobody's missed crazy extended time. I know a lot of people were really worried about the Tobias injury initially, and people, like, there were rumors that that could be a MCL or something that puts him out for the season. It ends up being a knee contusion. He looks great on Wednesday. Now he gets another seven days, obviously, to get back to 100%, which is why I think he was able to play. I think he probably 
doesn't yeah. play that game if there's not, you know, that long of a uh, rest window after, which is very fortunate for the Sixers. But yeah, I mean, the take the takeaways from that game for me are, are definitely more about what the Sixers did well and and more about their brand of basketball really working and that they don't have to uh, adjust the way they play against teams who who do it the other way. The Jazz played their game and and they hung in there, but I also think that. You know, if you run that game back 10 times, I think the Sixers win it like seven out of 10 times. I mean, Jazz total 47.7% from three. That's not going to be the norm. And if you really like highlight some of the ones they made, especially in the first half, I mean, like I think one of the first ones, if not the first one, was that Mitchell shot clock beater over Tobias Harris where the Sixers were playing elite team defense. Like that shot shouldn't go in. Clarkson hit one off the backboard like, not supposed to happen. There was another shot clock buzzer beater that Bogdanovich had. Well, I think Simmons or Tobias were right in his face as well. They just shot a couple feet off the line. I mean, these weren't normal threes. The Sixers weren't giving up a ton of incredibly open looks. The Jazz were hitting really, really tough shots, which, like you said, you know, they they have a couple guys that can do it, but you know, I think you run that game back, and I think more often than not, the the efficiency that they had in this game overall, which obviously down the stretch was what killed them so bad, but I think their efficiency overall in this game would not be would be above average in in a series. So, uh, the fact that you beat them when they had that kind of efficiency, I think, says a lot about how good the Sixers actually are. Yeah, and, and you you saw the Sixers defense. When they want to play defense, they they step it up and play D. And like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to say they have an extra gear. I don't want to say they have they can turn the key on or something. But like, when they're focused and they're ready, like they're they're hard to score on. Oh yeah, and they're, they're a good team. And you would hope that you know come playoff time they're focused and ready. You know every game for the whole game because it's it now or never. Then you know. <clears throat> And with this coaching staff, with the maturity of Joel, and maybe like I think Ben's matured a lot too. You can kind of tell the way he talks sometimes. Like these guys are hitting their stride; that they're they're ready to make, they're ready to go. Yeah, I think uh, especially with Ben, which I agree completely, and I've tried to give it as much credit as I can, and I'm I'm kind of upset to this point. Uh, at least as far as you know, the podcasts I listen to, the news articles I read, and I, I mean, I try I try to find everything I can. I, I'm yet to see a real good, like, in-depth piece on what exactly Sam Cassell is doing. I know he works with Ben a lot, and I think you're seeing a lot of flashes of that. And like, I would just love to get a real, like, great, like, you know, interview piece of somebody sitting down with Sam Cassell and really finding out, you know, like what he sees in Ben, like what he is working on with him and how he thinks he's grown. Because I think a lot of uh, the development of Ben this season and a lot of the things he's been doing as far as becoming more aggressive, uh, I think has a lot to do with Sam Cassell. And I, I think that was such a great hire for this team. The entire coaching staff uh, has been great. Obviously, Doc's been great. Uh, Dan Burke's been great. Uh, Jaeger's been great. Uh, but I think Sam Cassell's going way under the radar. Yeah, he he's probably the most underrated hire um, I think they got this year. Um, and, I mean, you, you see it, everybody sees it, you know, from following people at the game. Like, when Ben comes out, the first thing he does is, I think he shoots free throws, and then he starts working with Sam in the post. Yeah. And Ben's post game as a guard, I guess, has really grown. And even, like, I like when Ben talks about his mentality and he says he's been working on it and stuff. And, so you, you can kind of see things too, like, and this is another thing for me. Like it feels like it's the time because 
Ben started seeing a sports psychiatrist last year, right? So apparently Ben has been working on his mental, working on his mental game, you know, just trying to figure some things out. And then now you input Sam Cassell with him, you know, kind of pushing him that, that, that next step, you know, if we're talking about steps and it, you know, he, I bet you after the season, we'll hear a lot more about what Sam actually brought to the table. Right. Yeah, I, I'm sure it'll come because I think a lot of people are interested. But I, I, I think especially with the success that we've already seen, and especially like I'd say the last like maybe 15 games or so, um, you know how good Ben has really, really looked. That uh, I'm, I'm just a little surprised it hasn't happened yet. I, I mean, maybe it's less that I'm surprised, and maybe it's just I want it really bad. But um, I, I think when that ha- inevitably happens, probably in like the athletic with Bodner or Rich Hoffman or something, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that'll be a hell of a read. So I'm really looking forward to that. Even so, even if nobody gets to actually talk to Sam, like uh, if the Sixers are really good this year and if they actually do make some kind of noise, he's going to be in head coaching searches. Oh, for sure. So, then the stories will leak, you know, then you'll start hearing stories about, you know, if he made a halftime speech one time or some shit like that. Like, so hopefully we'll find out, you know, a lot more about him this off season. Yeah. And, and the Ben thing is interesting too, as far as the, the sports psychiatrist and, and everything. Cause you know, not, not to be like, you know, a, a, a Jason Tatum kind of fan or anything, but I mean, Ben Simmons is 24 years old, man. Like, he has yeah. so much time to grow. Like we put so much pressure on him early on because he, you know, he came out the gate on fire. But man, like this kid has so much more room to grow. And you look at the first half of the season, and you know, if you just look at the regular counting stats, you're going to say, okay, well, this is pretty much what he's done the whole time. But number one, which obviously everyone seems to understand at this point, he's the defensive player of the year. So when you're putting up those stats as the best defender in the league, like that's pretty stupid and then the one thing okay you haven't gotten a a mid-range jumper from him yet you haven't gotten a three-point shot from him yet but the free throw percentage going up so now you have an entire half of this season where he's shooting just over 67 percent from the line you'll take that like that's fine he doesn't really need to do any better than that if he does great and you hope that if he's been able to make that jump then maybe you know he will trend a little bit more in the positive direction but this is already where we kind of were all just hoping he would get to was you know hovering around like 70 percent like you'll live with that and that's definitely enough to never ever be like willingly put at the free throw line and if he is then you're confident he's he can make them enough of them to win so since since the start of February, I think he's up to like seventy two percent on like seven or eight attempts a game. Yeah, and, it's uh, definitely still been increasing throughout the season. So I think that there's there's definitely a reasonable belief that that is not that's not necessarily even the floor at this point. I think he could definitely end up being around seventy. And I think if you actually look at his stats, I think he's still right around the same amount of attempts per game. Maybe a little like one or two more. But his uh his free throw rate or percentage rate or whatever it's called, um ha- has gone up by like incremental amounts. So he's actually has the ball less and getting fouled the same. So let's see. So th- so, so like it kind of like correlates into like him. Basically, it's a way of showing how aggressive he's been. Yeah. So he's actually like he's at a he's at a career low for field goal attempts per game. Uh, last season was a little over 11. The first two seasons, he was just over 12. This season, he's at 10.7, but he's getting to the line 
5.4 times a game, which is actually the same as his previous career high, which was 18-19. But that 67% is like he, he's gotten better every year. So he went from 56 to 60 to 62, and now he's at 67 this season. And like you said, if you if you take you know the trending of it, it's trending upward. He's been shooting better there as of late than even at the start of the season. So uh, all those are, are indicators of, of good things, good enough things now and, you know, positivity and even better uh you know returns on that going forward still which you know they're gonna need like they're far from a perfect team but we know they're really great at home we know the starting five has put up incredible numbers and we know pretty much as long as Joel Embiid is playing in the game that they've pretty much had a puncher's chance if not one or kick the crap out of every team in the league so to this point there's it's it's kind of hard to complain about much and I think that's been a weird feeling for Sixers fans, but I mean, I like, you know, I've told everybody this to this point, like I've just enjoyed this season. Um, I am sometimes very pessimistic. I, I can get into that negadelphia kind of mentality sometimes, but this season I, I just really haven't been that upset. And I've really been trying to be like a voice of reason for a lot of people, whether it's when they wanted to, you know, still amnesty Tobias, whether it was trying to, you know, put Danny green on the bench you know, whether it's been screaming at Ben Simmons to shoot threes, like this season, I just haven't found anything so far that like, I really think that I need to be that mad about the bench. Yeah. But like that mad about like, you know, we're going <laughs> to nah, talk about what, just, what you can make better, but that just is what it is. Yeah. Right. And I and, mean, uh, it's weird. Now you say that we actually had a writer for last out, write an article saying that you're allowed to have fun. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I should read that sometime. Maybe you should give it a read <laughs> or a plug. Uh, but, but yeah, so I, I wrote that piece if anybody wants to read it. But, yeah, I mean, and, and I even said, like, that was like a cathartic thing for me. Like, I had to write that almost to myself to almost, you know, vindicate to myself. Like, hey, like, it's okay that you're not screaming at the TV this whole season. And it's okay that you're not going on Twitter and talking about how the coach needs to be fired and the roster needs to be overhauled this season. Like, it's 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 such a – it's such a great thing for my mental health, and I think a lot of other people have had it too. And that doesn't mean I'm still not, you know, standing up watching the end of that Jazz game or or screaming uh, at Donovan Mitchell when he's hitting difficult shots. But uh, it it just feels like a yeah. more like cathartic anger than a like I'm gonna have a heart attack and die anger if if that makes sense to anybody, which I think I, sadly a lot of people will relate to. I I think there's a lot more things to be hopeful about this year. So like you can tell a big difference between this team winning games compared to the last year. Like, sure. you know, when, and I, I tried to do it last year. Like if you follow me or, I mean, you should know I'm a little more on the positive side. Um, but last year I was, I was really looking for reasons to go, all right, well, you know, if this happens, this can, this happens this year, if they lose a bad game, like you just realize, like, this team's still good. Like, yeah, like the it, Cavs games. Like, neither Cavs yeah. game that, that really hurt, you know, right at the moment that I sit there and go, man, this team has, like, a fatal flaw. It's like, I don't know, Cleveland has two young guards that play hard. And, that, like you said, like, yeah, this, we don't want to categorize this team as, like, flipping a switch or anything, but there are definitely still, you know, very minor flashes of not being super engaged but, like, they're not going to have it 100% of every game. It's just not realistic. And for all the issues we've had in the past of needing this team to, like, you know, get to the playoffs with everybody available and, you know, with fairly decent 
fresh legs that those are things you're going to kind of have to bite the bullet on to hope for that scenario later. Yeah, I, I think I think this team's a one-two seed, and I think you're going to see some games where they're just going to rest Joel, and you're not going to, you know, maybe like you, there's going to be some games where you're like, damn, this team doesn't have it, but um, it should be a short feeling because th- they do have it. So. Uh, Rob, so I want to ask, you know, let's kind of look at the first half as a whole. So the Sixers finish at 24-12. and 12. They're, the, they're the top team in the Eastern Conference, just holding off the Nets by a half a game. They're 16-3 and three at home. At this point, as far as we know, everybody's healthy. We're getting to the All-Star break. We've got two guys in the All-Star game. Are, are the Sixers at this point, you know, exceeding your expectations that you had about where you expected them to be? Or, I mean, I, I guess I don't know how this would be the answer, but are they below your expectations? No, they're they're exceeding. So I actually didn't come into this season with much expectations. Um, my goal, my thought process for this season um, was to have a new coaching staff come in you know, and see if they can get Joel and Ben to work together. And I thought, you know what, you know, COVID, um, who knows how the roster is going to work out, you know, um, who knows if Seth can play in the starting lineup. I was like, you know what, I think there'll be a three, four, five seed. Um, and then, like, just find out if Joel and Ben work together. That was my expectation. And, um, yeah, they're blowing me away right now. But I also didn't expect – and I always thought Joel would play really well. Um, the way Joel is playing right now is I can't. I, if anybody thought they saw this coming, is insane because what he's doing right now is absolutely historic. Yeah, uh, there's there's no way to, no way that anybody predicted that, and I agree. I mean, they're crushing my expectations. I think I had them maybe as like a fifth or sixth seed, if I'm being honest, because I kind of thought the same thing as far as like I thought the coaching staff would need a little time. I wasn't sure if Doc was going to make, you know, or, or Daryl Morey for that uh, fact, make a bigger move. Uh, obviously, getting rid of Horford was huge right off the, the bat, but that also made me think that, like, they might have had bigger plans. And, my, and hey, maybe they didn't, didn't come to fruition. You know, obviously, the, the Harden thing, we don't know how close that was. It sounds like maybe not as close as a lot of people said, but either way, uh, we were definitely in the mix, it seems. So who knows how everything goes if that happens or how much they really wanted it. But I, I wasn't sure if they were going to, you know, give this – uh, projected starting five at the beginning of the season a shot or if they were really just looking to kind of you know maybe hit a reset button or really make a drastic change and see how that went and either way I thought all those things would take more than a season I think the best case was that they give this thing a real chance and give it the whole season to blend and that appears to be what they're doing at this point and you know that they they will likely add things and we'll talk about that but there there's no shot in my mind that I expected this team to be first in the conference and you know will they stay there we'll talk about but even being there now I think and, and being healthy and looking like they have an identity like all those things are huge seeing the defense be good because defense generally you know once you have that locked in and, and in the playoffs especially like their half court defense looks great they generate a lot of turnovers they're a good transitional offense so there's there's a lot of things to be happy about and like you said there's there's no way that anybody projected Joel Embiid to be averaging 30 and 11 and a half and be the leader for MVP at it, the break over LeBron James 
You know, you know his thirty and ten right now. If the season were to end, it'd be the most efficient thirty and ten in the history of the NBA. I didn't know that, but I'm definitely not surprised. Between his free throw rate and his shooting percentages, he's literally like blowing efficiency numbers out the window. Well, yeah, I mean, when you think about, you know, like this, like it's not really a, a stat that necessarily matters because there has to be context to it. But one of the like. Uh, you know, highest accolades that there really are for a shooter that people hear about sometimes is that 50-40-90 club. And yep. he's in 50, he's 50-40 and 85 as a seven-foot center. That's insane. There, there's, <laughs> there's just no, there, there, there's no way to rationalize that. There's no way to the, believe that he's, that he's real. The Sixers might have two of those guys this year. Yeah, I mean, but that, that's what I mean. Seth Curry doesn't surprise you. No, oh, I forgot about Seth. Tobias. Oh, yeah, Tobias, too. You're right. They might have three. Let's see. Tobias is at 50. Yeah, he's 50, 40, 88.7. So, wow, Tobias could do it. And Seth Curry is 47, 45, 93. So his field goal percentage is actually what's hurting him. He has the free throw and the three point. He doesn't have the field goal percentage. And th- I think a lot of that is really he just doesn't actually take that many as many shots as we all thought he would, which yeah. is a whole other thing. So let's um I guess let's shift then to now the second half of the season. We know they're gonna have another thirty six games. We we now know that it seems that there will be at least a small crowd uh, at most of the games, at, at least for Sixers home games, they're going to have a small crowd. And obviously at some other places, they've either already let fans in or a lot of places are getting back. Uh, it was reported. I believe they said that the number is going to be something around 3,100 fans to start will be there. Uh, as a season ticket holder, I already have the email to be able to buy tickets for like the first four games back, which I think the first one is the Spurs game on the 16th. It's uh, next Thursday. Okay. Whatever the date is. So yeah, today's the uh, next no, next Thursday's deal. Is it really the eleventh? No, I'm sorry. Their first game back is next Thursday. Yeah, it's it's the it's the fourteenth against the Spurs. Sunday the fourteenth is the first uh, home game back, and they are going to allow fans yeah. in for that one. So Sunday the fourteenth, they will have uh, approximately thirty one hundred fans in attendance. And again, the Sixers are already. Uh, once again, one of uh, the best teams in the league at home. They are actually second best only to Utah. Obviously, was the best record in the league. Utah is fifteen and two. The Sixers are sixteen and three. So now they get fans back in. We know the home court advantage that Philadelphia provides. And so my first question to you, Rob, is with what we know now and just like average expectations for all the teams to you know add you know, a piece or two, all the top teams at least, looking at like Brooklyn, Milwaukee, whatever. Do you believe the Sixers can actually, you know, hold on to the top seed in the conference? And if not, where do you actually think that they wind up when we actually head into the playoffs? So I think um, I was actually asked this earlier today. Um, I think they're they're going to end up the two seed. One, one thing about the Nets and, and their offensive firepower is – in the regular season, and especially when they play certain teams, like they're they're going to win a lot of games. I think I really do. Um, and the Sixers have these weird, like in the second half of the season, they have these weird like bunches of games where I think one is like eight eight away games and out of ten, and it's all done in like sixteen or seventeen days. Um, so 
I don't know how they're going to handle Joel and with a lot of back-to-backs or, you know, five games and nine nights or ten, whatever it is. Um, so I can see the Sixers slipping a little and then the Nets kind of going up. But uh, I, I also don't think they're going to – like, I think they'll hover around the two seed, and I, I think that's eventually where they, they end up. And so do you have the Nets as the one, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm there with you. I don't know if they hold on to the one. I think the Nets, uh, especially the fact that they can pretty much sit one of their three stars every night and still beat most of the teams in the league, is going to give them a big advantage on trying to keep guys fresh but still being able to compete every night, where the Sixers, if any of Ben, Tobias, or Embiid miss a game, they're probably underdogs to a decent amount of the league, sadly, still. Uh, especially Embiid, obviously, who we both know is probably going to miss at least like, I think like five games is probably the the best case is that, you know, he plays like twenty seven of uh of the or, uh, sorry thirty one of thirty six, uh, is probably yeah. the best case for him. So you know, there's going to be a couple there. Uh, that stretch you talked about, which is is actually pretty brutal, is so starting on March twentieth. They're home against Sacramento, and then the next night they're on the road against the Knicks, and their next six game like that's the first of a six game road stretch where they play six road games in twelve days. So, uh, it, it's pretty. And it's cool. like it starts with that back to back, and then and then uh, they're home for two, and then they go on another four game road trip. So that's uh, ten out of twelve are on the road, and it all happens in basically three weeks. And it's like Lakers, Clippers, Bucks. Um, like they have some good good teams they're playing there. Yeah, and... three in a row is at Lakers, at Clippers, at the Nuggets, and then when they get back on the road again after a two game homestand, it's at Boston, at the Pelicans, at the Thunder, at the Mavs, and then at... come home to Brooklyn and the Clippers again. So it's tough. So, you know what I just thought of too. What is it? Uh, when it starts on March twentieth, you said. Yeah, that well, so that's that's a home game against Sacramento, but that weekend is a back to back. They go to New York that next night on Sunday, and that begins that six game road stretch. So, uh, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but the trade deadline is March twenty fifth. Yes. So there's a good chance that from the start of that, you could miss guys if they're on the block, right? And you're doing a three for one, or, you know whatever you could they might have to sit them so they could they don't get hurt yep and then once you make the trade guys have to you're still on that trip you don't know like who knows i mean it took hopefully this doesn't happen again but look how long it took uh alec burks and glenn robinson to get here like, right and that wasn't even doing the, the whole covid quarantine thing you don't know at this point if they're gonna have to do that too so if you acquire somebody you know, that Monday after the next game, and then you're on the road for the next five, you don't know if you might be down three bench pieces and not getting what you're trading for until possibly you're back home. You might be down a starter. True. Depending if you trade Danny or not. Right. Yeah, so like that's going to be tough. And again, like that's the benefit for a team like Brooklyn, even though I think they're probably only really taking on buyout candidates, is that, you know, even if they have to lose a couple guys, I mean, they're going to have – the, the heavy hitters and the stars to, to get them through those stretches a lot easier than the Sixers may. So that, yeah. that's a really good point. So, yeah, so, Oh, go ahead. 
No, you go. Go ahead. Um, so my my next question was, okay, so you have them in the two seed. Is who's the team that you fear the most of them uh, having the beat to get to the finals? <laughs> um, well, I, it, it's the Nets, and um, just because of how good they can be offensively. But there's like a weird thing in in me where I don't want to play the Raptors. Um, the Raptors scared the hell out of me because of the way they're able to defend Joel. I, I love that you said that because I was going to ask you to get like I think everyone's gonna would probably lead with the Nets. So I was going to ask you to give me like a, a dark horse, and Toronto's my dark horse, and and I'm glad you're with me there. Yeah, they have their guys. They're long, you know. They're athletic, and they they play their style of defense really well. And Joel, what I've seen from Joel this year was awesome because he can handle it. Um, the first Raptors game, they just didn't make shots. The second Raptors game, um, they did make shots and they won. <laughs> the problem is then what the Raptors do is they're making us making the Sixers rely too much on other guys. So Joel can, you know, get the mismatch or get the uh the doubles and the triples he can make the right pass but you know and uh, i'd rather lean on joel than have to lean on seth like yeah and one of the things you said earlier in, in the podcast that i think speaks to while i i again me and you both agree that they, they're a team we, we wouldn't love the idea of facing is that all comes back to the idea of not having joel put his back to the basket you're having joel have full vision of the court and you're letting him see those things develop in front of him and you're finding out i mean we all knew he wasn't like a bad passer but he just wasn't like the most aware guy when everything was behind him, which is totally understandable. So now you're finding that if he sees it coming, you know, in front of him, and and then he can see the rest of the court, like he can make the pass to the open guy. We've seen him hit Seth across the floor, or Danny Green across the floor, and get them really good shots. And we've seen him, you know, kind of bait guys into the double to get other guys good looks this season a lot more than we saw before. So the, the way that they've really increased the efficiency of that inside-out offense is something that is going to translate against pretty much all these teams if they try and throw other people at Joel Embiid. I think I think he one of the things I think he's seeing the doubles earlier now too. Um like if you watched him in the past, sometimes he can handle the double, but he he, he like the double would get there and then he'd be realized like oh shit, I'm doubled. You know, now it looks like he's seeing the guy come. And he he's knowing where he's coming from, if that makes sense. Yeah, it it, it makes a lot of sense. Like so, he's processing the game faster. Yeah, for sure, and that's what I mean. I, I there's def, there's definitely an increased, uh, you know, dedication on his end to to understand things, and I think it also helps. You know, like I I'm so sick of the phrase surrounding with shooters. So instead of that, I'm just going to say like you have a well constructed roster around him of guys who one know their role, and and a coach who's making sure everybody understands their role and understands that like this is you essentially have to you know teams have schemes that they run. They have like half court offensive styles they love to run. Like we know watching that Jazz game, Zoo and Ala did a great job of making sure everybody knew the Jazz are the number one team in amount of pick and rolls they run. They're the most efficient pick and roll team and they, they made sure that even like the average fan was watching Saul time and time again, you know, here's a pick and roll, here's a pick and roll, et cetera, et cetera. The the Sixers, for all the things they do in their half court offense, like you almost have to look at Joel being double teamed as a as a uh, like 
and a way that they run their offense rather than a defensive scheme thrown at them. Like that is actually something that they can almost run is, Hey, we're going to get you all the ball on the block and a double is going to come. And then this is what we're doing out of it. Like, that's how you have to look at it. You don't want to say, hey, we're going to draw up this offensive design, and then if they double Joel, then we're fucked because the play's for him. It's, hey, like this is basically a staple in our offense now is Joel gets doubled. How do we get somebody open? So instead of it being the defense forcing your hand, it's the defense playing into your scheme. Yep, and I, I think one, one of the other good things with Joel is now it's he he's so dominant too with the ball that – if they plan, so so like you said, like they're they're planning for Joe to get doubled, but if they don't double him or the, the team tries to throw a wrinkle in and say, "Yo, we're not going to double him this time," Joel's just going to score. Yeah. <laughs> so doesn't catch twenty. Kind of a double-edged sword, like yeah, yeah. You you like the idea is even even when they make the adjust, like this is the one thing we always heard about with Brett Brown, and and it was true, but there's different ways to look at it. Is Brett Brown usually had a really good idea of how to go into a game. He didn't know how to adjust. Now, Doc Rivers can definitely adjust a little better, but it's not even so much that Doc Rivers is is adjusting. It's that the Sixers are just more prepared for those adjustments to come in the first place. They're not really having to change their style. And and it goes back to what I said earlier in, in talking about this Jazz and Sixers game is that even when the Jazz were shooting the lights out and, ha- and you know, kind of hovering around a double-digit lead, the Sixers were playing their game. They were not going to let the Jazz dictate how they were going to play. They knew that in the in the full run of the game, that if they stuck to the way that they played basketball, they could still win. And ultimately, they did. And that's what, yeah. like, championship teams do. Yeah, they, they, they stay grounded. They... You know, they could have went out and just started chucking threes and tried to keep up with right. the Jazz, right? Like, it's just not that. But they, they didn't. And, you know, it, they didn't give up either. And I know a lot of a lot of the talk now is, you know, oh, this team would have lost this game under Brett, blah, 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 blah. You know, a lot of it goes back to coaching a lot. And I'm, I'm happy, Doc, here. But there's... There's also a maturity to guys. Yes, thank you. Going into their fourth, fifth, sixth year. Thank you. Having guys like Dwight too, like there, there's, there's more to it than just the coaching scenes. So yes, and when I say, and this is a game that in the past, Ben and Joel would have lost. Yes, that's and what, I think that's if Doc was fair. here, they still would have lost. Yes. That's um, that's so I well think... said, and and that's like especially on like ESPN and stuff like that. You'll hear like I I was listening to a uh, segment with Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman the other day talking about Embiid, and I'll give them credit because I actually think for the most part they they talked it pretty well. Um, Stephen A. Smith obviously knows basketball; is just kind of a troll. Obviously, that's that's yeah. his bit. I think Max Kellerman's a fucking idiot, but. Um, for the most part, I, I I liked what they talked about. But the one thing that you're going to hear from a lot of people is that Doc Rivers is like pretty responsible for the jump that Joel Embiid has made. And I just don't think that's true. And it's not a knock on Doc Rivers. I think Joel Embiid had enough of being disappointed with the way his seasons went and finally took it seriously. It just so happened that you know the result of him not taking it seriously was the firing of Brett Brown. That's really what it was, is that... Like, you know, not to trash our king, but like Joel Embiid is a big reason why Brett Brown got fired because yeah. Joel Embiid could have done this sooner. That's just the reality. And- he always had this talent. Everybody knew it. Doc Rivers, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't really get credit for Joel getting his shit together. Um, he gets a ton of credit. And I'm with you. I'm happy Doc's here. 
Uh, I'm just not on board with with so much of the conversation around, you know, all these things he's doing and all the success he's having that Brett Brown couldn't have. If you gave Brett Brown this Joel Embiid and this Ben Simmons and this Tobias Harris, it's a completely different conversation. The only guy I'm, I'm willing to give him a decent amount of credit on is Tobias because th- there has to be something with how Doc got this out of him before and is getting it out of him again. And Brett just couldn't figure out how to put him in the, the role he needed to be. So like that one, I'll give you. But Ben and Joel taking, you know, personal steps in their player development and their maturity and their attitude, uh, I'm I'm not willing to give that to Doc Rivers. I'm sorry. So I will I will credit Doc with a lot of things, and uh, like one of the things is playing Joel and Ben together more. Um, and for whatever reason, Brett didn't do it. Um, I think there was a situation like one of the things with Brett too is like his job was on the line for like five years. Yeah, Brett so, also never had a backup center, and people want to complain yeah. about Dwight Howard, but he's a great backup center, so it helps Doc roll out more of a you know consistent bench lineup. But go ahead. yeah, and then we and then you have and Brett and Brett, you know, he had his flaws, but sure. Um, the one thing you'll hear that I'll really give Doc for is there's this accountability going around, and I, Ben keeps saying it, other players keep saying it, and I, it's not like like I don't think Brett came in and said like. Oh, you guys just do whatever you want. You know, we don't need to practice today. But I think there's a different aspect for younger players um, when they see, you know, Doc in his championship ring and they see Sam Cassell and they have, you know, Daryl Morey upstairs. And, like, the environment around this team this year is different than it's been for, you know, the past couple years. And... I think part of that is Doc. Um, but, uh, yeah, you're right. Like, I agree. As far as personal steps, like, Joel Embiid and Drew Hanlon have been working on this face-up, mid-range shooting type game plan for three or four years now. Like, it just so happens that it's it's all coming together now. Yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure Doc and his staff, like, I'm sure there's guys there that are showing Joel things that maybe the other – you know, Brett and the other staff didn't show because not everybody knows every little aspect of basketball. But like, okay, a, a lot of the people on Twitter don't know everything about basketball. No, no comment. <laughs> um, no, but like, it, it, it's. I think it's just like, and I'll say it again. Like, it's a perfect storm of things coming together. The I think the the Brett Brown getting fired kind of woke the guys up too. Yeah, I think. Maybe the idea that Ben could get traded kind of woke him up a little bit. And, Maybe. you know, Joel's kid, like, there's just a whole bunch of stuff coming together that you see these guys coming into their own. And um, I don't think you can really give, like, the amount, like you said, the amount of credit Doc's getting is is a little overblown. You know, he's only been here for like four months. <laughs> like, well, no, the other well, season just ended. <laughs> see, like, uh, like I know you don't mean it that way either, but just to make sure it's not misconstrued, like, I don't think it's overblown. I just think there's certain aspects that he doesn't need to be given as much credit for. Like, he's done yeah. an incredible job. I don't think you could ask him to do any better. So, to to say the amount of credit he's getting is overblown, I don't know. I think there's just specific things you have to understand aren't necessarily all on him. And that's, yeah, that's. That's yeah. that's what I'm getting. Yeah, that's so what like, I, mean. I I know that's what you mean. I just want to make sure that no, like we are by no means bashing Doc Rivers at all. He's been incredible. And I said like I was I was pretty big on Stan Van Gundy when I thought that he was campaigning to come here, and I thought that would have been fun. 
Uh, I'm not saying I even then that I thought that was the answer, but I thought it would have been fun for sure. I said that I thought that if you were going to fire Brett, that you better bring in somebody that those two specifically, Ben and, and uh, Joel, were going to respect and were going to listen to. And, and, and pretty much exactly how it went was you bring in this guy and you say, if he can't make these two work, then one of them has to go. And fortunately you know, he's made them work and now it doesn't look like either of them have to go. But like, I wasn't willing to take another, you know, young analytics guy. I wasn't willing to take some retread. Like, a like, I mean, I'm not really a big fan of Ty Lue. Um, I know obviously he might've had the pedigree with like LeBron and Kyrie and everything, but I, I just don't, I just don't really buy it that much. Um, so Doc Rivers was, was really like the guy was like bringing this big name who has a ring, who's coached the personalities who I think everybody in the league respects. And if he can't make it work, then I'm pretty sure nobody can. So, um, Obviously, you know, for, for how bad this fucking ownership group has been, um, you've got to give them credit for, for getting Doc in here, getting Daryl in here, still keeping Elton, which I know, like, he's probably not doing all that much, but I still really like Elton Brand being here, and I think that he's a good GM. So right now, like, you've got to be pretty confident in everything they have going on, and, and it's translating to the court. So um, there's not a whole lot to complain. Yeah, one of, one of the things that, you know, and I, I don't like the ownership group by any means, but right. they're willing to spend money, man. And sure. they want to spend money. They're, well, they're making they plenty, too. So. Huh? Yeah, they're making yeah, plenty, yeah, yeah, too. So let's, yeah. you know, let's give credit where it's due to, to the well, fans they, selling that place out and the ridiculous amount of merchandise that people are buying and whatnot. But, yeah, they, they are spending the money back. So it's good. It's good. And they – um. They always get these – like I always get people that are saying, oh, they just want to make money. They don't want to win. Well – no, like if you win, you make more money. Right. So um, yeah. I always just said like they got too involved and they don't know how to win. Right. And I think bringing Doc and I think Doc probably has some cachet with the, the ownerships. Right. Like if ownership came down and told Brett Brown. So, so the story, remember the story, the ownership came down and told Brett Brown to trade Mikel Bridges for Zaire Smith. Yeah. One of the owners got really involved. Like. Do you think that's happening with Daryl Morey and Doc Rivers? No. And that's why I'm giving ownership credit, unfortunately, because I think they, you know, I don't make whether they realized it or not. That's ultimately what what happened by them bringing these people in. So whether that yeah. was a conscious decision or not, I don't know. And I don't really care because I definitely think nah. to what you're saying that that is the case now, that there's no way you walk into a room with Doc Rivers and, and Daryl Morey and start giving really your like probably even offering up your opinion on anything that has to do with player personnel. Yeah. So and yes, whether that that was like you said, whether that was their intention or we just kind of lucked into it, yeah, then whatever, whatever, whatever I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of Doc and Daryl Morey and, and Elton Brand to a degree and player personnel, so we know that all the top teams are going to start making moves. We're already hearing reports that uh, so Blake Griffin uh, agreed to uh, get a buyout with Detroit. Uh, it's already rumored that uh, the Nets are the leaders for him per Sham Sharania. Uh, dude, he gave back $13.3 million to the Pistons for the buyout. He gave them $13.3 million to get out of there. That's crazy. So Yeah, but they, they – no. He gave back off his contract. Yeah. That's he still I mean, got so. like $60 million from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, you know what I mean. But um, I, I would pay $13 million to make 60 to leave Detroit too. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but he gets to go ring chasing. It, it looks like he's going to go to the Nets. Uh, it already, I'm, I'm seeing, I don't know uh, if you know more than me here, but uh, I'm, I'm seeing some pretty decent rumors about us being the landing spot for uh, P.J. Tucker. Yeah, I've, I've seen that too, us and the the Lakers. Yeah. Um, the one thing I read, though, I, I forget who it was who tweeted it, but um, the, it's the whole rival execs expect this, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And one thing is, like, anybody from Houston, we're probably going to be linked to. True. You know, we look. I mean, before Harden even requested a trade, the Sixers were linked to Harden. Like, yes, it is. Could be fair that PJ Tucker and you know Daryl Morey, you know, have this relationship, and they, he's going to go after his guy. So. Yeah, I mean, so and the the only reason I bring up PJ Tucker is because I, like it seemed like a lot of people loved the idea of getting him until this season, where obviously since Harden left, the Rockets are, are are a pretty bad team, and they've also been like ridiculously unlucky with injuries to the few kind of okay players they have. And PJ Tucker's play has gone completely downhill for the most part. the The difference is if you're getting him for like a second round pick, or if he gets bought out and he comes here, like I don't care what this season has looked like for him. Like especially if he's coming off the bench, I love the idea of him being here. Like look at look at this team's defensive identity, and then imagine being able to roll him out there in you know 20 minutes a game with a much lesser expectation and smaller role and let him just kind of bully dudes and play good defense and and maybe hit the occasional three I mean I think that's really all you're looking for and I know a lot of people have also talked about Bielitsa who is definitely more of you know like a stretch four or five like shooter he doesn't play the defense so it's kind of which way do you you prefer I kind of think I like the idea more of knowing that P.J. Tucker can play good defense, can rebound, can even small ball five if you need to. And I've seen enough of him in his career to trust that he'll hit enough shots, whereas I know Bielitsa's a better shooter, but, like, guy can't really defend anybody. So I'm not anti-P.J. Tucker. Um, But if he's, the like, the only move. Well, yeah, I'm not saying that at all. Yeah, Um but I, I think so. Part of me, like I'm, I'm not big on PJ Tucker. Like he is what he is um, for a second or buyout or whatever. That's fine. Um, part of me started to really hate PJ Tucker this year, um, more so because I don't know. Maybe somebody said that PJ Tucker was better than Tobias Harris, well, and then yeah, there was okay. this whole. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> but, I'm obviously not whole... saying that, and you know, me and you are are team Tobias guys, so let's not. No, even... <laughs> I know. But this whole there was this whole idea like PJ Tucker can come in and save the team. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's not. I mean, he'd be nice there. My only thing with that is like I'm not worried about bench defense all the time. Um, they need someone to score. Um, so cool, bring in PJ. But let's not not make that the only move. Yeah. Oh, I'm and not I'll saying say that at too. all. I'm just, I'm just addressing the rumors of it already being out there now. Obviously, uh, I'll the admit other... this right now. Um, hit even though I'm not a big PJ guy, if he just sat in the the right corner, mm-hmm. the Sixers are shooting like 10 percent higher than anybody else out of that right corner. Because essentially, what's happened is Embiid. Well, Simmons drives left, and then Embiid posts up on the left side a lot more. So they're swinging the ball so well that 
in theory, he could have it could work out better for him here than in, in the Rockets right. because it's it's going to be easier for him. I mean, that's essentially you know all that I'm really saying. But uh, obviously, the other one, which you know, I don't know if the the rumors are strong enough yet, but the speculation is clearly there. There's definitely a difference, but the speculation, obviously, being the big name, sounds like Kyle Lowry could potentially be coming here, and there's already uh, it's already apparently been confirmed that he sold his house in Toronto, so. Uh, it seems like he kind of knows he's going somewhere, just doesn't necessarily know where yet. I know me and you have talked, you know, off this pod and uh, behind the scenes about this already a little bit, but um, the like the only other place I've really seen him even considered is the Clippers, and like I just don't think it makes a lot of sense for Toronto or the Clippers to do that deal. So I'm having a hard time placing him anywhere else than here. Miami. Okay. Um. But the thing about Miami is um, they can't trade picks right now either. Yeah. So they would have to, if they wanted to bring someone like Larry in, they're going to have to get, you know, let go of one of their young guys, a, a nun or a hero or something like that, which they don't really want to do. Yeah. So, and I agree with you. I think the, the Miami, the Clippers, who also don't have any picks to trade, and Philly are – the uh the spots and and the Sixers can outbid all three of both of them unless unless Miami goes here's Tyler Hero and I I think the Raptors would pounce on that but I don't think Miami does it yeah I think that's ultimately I mean Miami does make sense uh as far as he could definitely help them but yeah I agree I think the pieces they have that I think Toronto would want they they kind of need as well and I think that it's definitely not a lateral deal. Um, Lowry would definitely help them a little bit, but the thing is, is that like, you know, if we're sending like a Maxi or a Matisse, while both are contributing this season, especially Matisse a little bit more, mainly on the defensive end, I don't think that either of them are nearly as important to our success this year as anybody Miami has to include in that deal. They're all much bigger uh, role players on that team, so the trade-off for us acquiring Lowry as far as the, what the player cost is versus Miami, I, I think is fairly significant. I also just don't really buy Miami as a contender no matter what they do. Um, so obviously Lowry moves the needle, but it's not enough to, to I think, really have them make noise. I don't think that puts them in the same tier as Milwaukee, Brooklyn, or us, even if they do that. Yeah, I am was never really sold on Miami to begin with. Um, I was at the beginning the of the season, I'll admit that, but they it's de- definitely like – you know, I kind of probably leaned too far into that finals run. Um, yeah. And I mean, they're playing really, they're playing pretty good once they got everybody back, but I'm still just not sure that I believe it overall. So, yeah, and I, I think the Sixers played well, you know, a few times against Miami. And yeah, it's still I, a good I still, matchup. There's no, they don't have anyone to stop Joel. Like, oh, well, yeah, that's for sure. Or slowing down. Like, do, do, who? Like, yep. You know, yeah. So. I mean, that's I mean, that's the question you're gonna have to ask about every team is who like what's the answer for him? It doesn't appear that there is one, and, and, then, and especially against so, the teams that you expect them to run into. I mean, if you look at let's say you take like the the the, the top two in the East and the top three in the West. I mean, let's look at Utah, the Clippers, and the Lakers. I mean, the only possible answer is Gobert, and I think Embiid just buried that the other night. Brooklyn doesn't have a center. Like DeAndre J- Jordan does not count to me. Blake Griffin sure isn't going to be the answer for that at power forward. And then you look at Milwaukee. I mean, Robin Lopez. No, I really don't think so. Brooke, 
Brooke. Or Brooke uh, Lopez, yeah, sorry. I was no, Brooke or Giannis would have to guard him. Yeah, and, and I'm not worried about either of them. Neither of them have had have the record before he was this efficient of, of handling yeah. him too well. So they're yeah. probably they're probably the best ones though, out of everyone you you named. I mean, I, I would still say Gobert. I I know he looked awful. Oh yeah, the yeah. Other night. I mean, I meant in the East. I'm sorry. In the East, yes, for sure, uh, definitely. I mean, I guess I might think Bam can do better than either of them, but maybe not. I mean, I just haven't seen it yet. But at least he's like athletic enough and like has the energy to try but i i just don't buy it uh, this year joel will destroy him well right yeah i mean th- i mean that's that's the different context you have to have with this like it's an entirely different conversation if we're if we're really looking at this year's joel versus the past it's kind of more like okay like could you even believe that maybe if he like regresses a little or is not 100 percent, and one of these guys really like figures it out but like that that's so there's so much variance in that and uh, again the conversation around Joel for the first half of this season so far has to be the idea that the variance for him has shrunk so much, and he's just playing at this elite level pretty much all the time, which is obviously the the whole reason the Sixers are where they are right now, and hopefully it can <laughs> yeah. continue. So, Rob, my, my last kind of question to you as, as we try to look forward to the second half and further is, so barring the big move, which at this point I think is probably only really Kyle Lowry, but even if it was something else like Lowry, Levine, Beal, guys like that, you know, not your P.J. Tuckers, not, not even like Alonzo Ball or anything, barring the big move, this team as it is, maybe a buyout guy, maybe a, a small trade for an upgrade, like what is what is your prediction for them? Where do they go barring that move? Is it the second round, um, third round finals win, finals loss? So uh, I do think this team can get to the finals as constructed. Um, I'm not going to predict that shit though. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think they they end up the two you know two seed, hopefully not the three seed, and I I think they're in Eastern Conference Finals this year, um, at least. And if so, they if they make the big move, if they get a Kyle Lowry, Kyle Lowry to me, and I don't want to predict it, but he's the move that he he's like the Mark Saul of Toronto, but better, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I, I think I he. Is, I really do believe that he can really put them over the top. Um, I mean, if you think about it, like just forget about. He's finally a guard. Like you can put him on Kyrie, and he can hold his own. Mm-hmm. So now you have a someone that can guard a guard, and it just that. And in, I, I'm not hating on Danny Green, but like Kyle is a massive upgrade on Danny, and he unlocks Ben, you know, off ball even because he can actually pass the ball, which is fucking amazing. We never had people who can pass the ball, right? You know, so I I think Kyle is the move in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, we both agree on Kyle Lowry. That's a huge deal. I I truly believe that they can win the whole thing as they are, uh, even with like minor upgrades like a like a Bealitz or a Tucker, and maybe uh, you know just another like bench George score. Hill. Yeah, something like that. I think that they could still definitely do it with that. If if or when the Kyle Lowry thing happens, like I'm putting I'm putting significant money on them to win the whole thing. I think that's the difference is I would still 
say that it's either them or Brooklyn out of the East as everybody stands right now. If you put Kyle Lowry on this team, I'm I'm willing to not only say they're making it to the finals, I'm putting my money there and I'm and I'm putting it for them to win, not to make it to win. I th- I think it is that big of a move. And that's really the conversation that like I'm trying to have with most people. Is so many people get caught up in how old Lowry is right now and that it's a rental and this and that. And it's like, yeah, like that's fine. You understand that you can win a title this season. Fuck everything else. Win the goddamn title. Learn from the Eagles. Like there's mm-hmm. some people that seem to be really mad that the Eagles are bad right now. I don't give a shit. I got a Super Bowl. I'm good. I, I, dude, exactly. Like and, uh, and and the difference is like basketball is not the same as football. Like even if you you pay up for Lowry and then he walks next season, you still have Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and Tobias Harris. Like it's not gonna be the end of the world either way. Is it gonna yeah. make like some things a little complicated? Sure, but like things were also super complicated when you signed Al Horford, and look how quickly that went away. Like the NBA yeah. has plenty of ways around these things that aren't always pretty, but generally make it manageable at least. And I don't, I don't think, I don't think Kyle leaves. Um, really? I yeah, I think it, no. I mean, like if he came here, I think he resigns and he finishes his career here. I mean, I I, I haven't even entertained the idea of what they could offer him if he does. Can they realistically keep him here? Yeah. Um, they they when they trade for if they trade for Kyle they bring he gets his bird rights. Huh. So I, I think uh like Marty Teller had saw a post today about signing uh Kyle to two like two years forty million. Yeah, yeah I, I saw that too. So that that was so like my only. I don't think Marty Marty's not reference. the type of person that's going to ask questions that can't happen. No 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 come on. You, so, we, both uh, know, we both know better. Mar- Marty's uh. Uh, recurring guest on the pod. Yeah, that, that's the only frame of reference I had was I saw him post the poll between uh, you know Lowry for two forty or Lonzo for like four eighty or four ninety I think. So, yeah. So I, I I did know there was like a potential there, but that's what, I don't know what like their full capability of offering him something is. Um, yeah, I think I, I think imagine he would take two forty. I mean, that's yeah. He's made enough money. He's not getting a max deal anywhere. Yeah, for oh. sure. Not no, not at this point. So come here where you know you kind of get that uh Brooklyn treatment where they can probably give you know a guy a, a night off a lot easier uh if if it's him Tobias Ben and Joel like come on and one 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 thing about Kyle and his game and I won't talk about as he gets older injured injury wise as he gets older but his game like and I, I'm sorry if we're going too long but no, you're fine. yeah People always look at like, oh, small guards, they can't play into, you know, as they get older or something. Like, when we look at small guards, when we look at like the Isaiah Thomases, we look at the Allen Iversons of the world, um, those guys were so reliant on their first step and their speed and their scores. Like, they don't have, and I I don't, I'm not going to say that Kyle is on the same level as AI, but Kyle does more on the court. He, he plays he's like a Chris Paul type person to me where his game doesn't age cuz his athleticism goes down a little bit or because his he loses a half a step on his first step he he can do more on the court that he doesn't have to rely on that yeah and that's one of the great things that he brings to the Sixers of all things is that that kind of like i could do he could do a lot more than just having to rely on athleticism 
Yeah, and you're seeing that as, as his career goes on too, because he's becoming, you know, a better shooter. So whereas you would have looked early in his career and, and maybe thought, yeah, once he loses a step, that maybe that won't necessarily be the case. But I mean, this is a guy who, for his career, is is under thirty seven percent from three. But this season, on seven attempts a game, is shooting forty percent. So like he, he's adjusting his game as well, and that's the sign of somebody who it's you not. can trust for a little bit. A guy who understands that okay, I can't necessarily do all the things I used to. So now, how do I get better, and how do I uh, adjust and maintain? And and he's put in the work to do that. It appears, and he and he's still putting up really really solid numbers. I mean, eighteen a he's game. He's playing well. Eighteen yeah. a game, seven assists a game, five and a half rebounds. I mean, like. It, when you look at that, he's eerily close. To, like, obviously, he's not playing the same defense, but I mean, he puts up a stat line fairly close to like Ben Simmons and plays pretty good defense as well. Like, you're about to bring in another guy like that who's just going to like piss people. Like, this team, we've always wanted this team to be like the team that everyone hates that annoys the shit out of everybody. And Kyle Lowry is like the final piece to that. Like, him, everyone's going to fucking well. hate this team. People are going to hate him and Joel if they play together. Oh, yeah. It's going to be fucking awful. Like, the only person I can imagine being more annoying here is, like, Marcus Smart. Like, other than yeah. that, like, Kyle Lowry is, like, pro- it's, like, it's, like, Marcus Smart, Kyle Lowry, and then, like, Pat Beverly. Like, that's, like, the top three of guys that. Keep keep Pat Beverly. I can't root for Pat Beverly. No, I'm, you know, I'm not talking about who keep I'm rooting for. I'm, but I'm saying, like, those are, like, the, the three guys that, like, piss people off. And if you put one of them alongside Joel, like, it's going to be really ugly for a lot of the rest of the league but no um yeah i agree but yeah so i think i think we're both super in on kyle lowry i mean i know this doesn't really matter but entertain me for the last thing here uh you know like give me a percentage you think the possibility kyle kyle's here before the playoffs or before 50, the trade deadline 50 percent. 50 percent. i'll take it yeah that point. All right. I, I think it's more than what people think i think it's capable of being ha- happening do you do you think he's moved no matter what? I guess is like the way you start that whole conversation. Is he definitely leaving Toronto? So I don't know. So okay, the house thing is weird, right? So and I don't want to dive in and whatever. No, but he no, puts, and that's what I mean. You can you can kind of like I, I I'm more so saying like I think that's where you have to start the conversation about will he come yes. here because I think he's leaving there. So like yes. once, if you get to that point, that. if you get to the point where you're saying he's not staying there then, like, I think we have to be, like, 75 80% the favorite for where he goes. Now, if you think that there's a possibility that he stays there, then, yeah, I probably would put it at 50. But I, I just don't see how he stays at this point. It doesn't make sense for the Raptors, and it doesn't make sense for him. No, they, and especially they're already paying Fred Van Fleet, like, yeah. what, 20-something million? Mm-hmm. And so they're, one, one thing that um, I'm noticing, I don't think – the Raptors really are true contenders this year. No, they're not. And I, I don't think they're, they're a disruptor. Losing, they're not a I don't contender. Think, yeah. I don't think losing rally, uh, Lowry changes too much for them. Like, without Lowry on that team, I still think they're a 4-5 or five seed. I still think they're going to make some noise in the playoffs. Um, and then going forward in the future, um, they just drafted Malachi Flynn, who I think could end up being really good. And they have Fred Van Fleet and Norman Powell playing really well together right now. Um, and Siakam, who I hate, but and, he's good. Yeah, and if if they're not if they're not going to invest money in keeping Lowry there, they're going to be it. It would be smart of them to move him. Uh, Just yeah. to get something like you're going to get a first, and you might get a young player for him. So you, 
Like yeah, either way this season they're they're what I call a disruptor, which means they're a team that can definitely upset somebody, but they can't they can't make it to the finals. They probably can't make it to the conference finals, but they can absolutely be a bottom half first round team that upsets a favorite easily. But that's about their ceiling, and I agree with you. I think that's with or without Lowry. Now, obviously, with Lowry, it's even more likely, but they could still do it either way. And the other thing about Toronto as a franchise is like they're they're smart. They're they're one. Yeah, of they them don't. That, they don't waste things like this. Yeah, so, I mean they they fired Dwayne Casey after he was coach of the year. Right. They they traded Demar Derozan. Like yeah, they they, just, they know when to cut bait. And then another thing, and I'm gonna take credit for this because I don't take credit for by shit. By all means, any, man, take, like, take your credit. I uh I've been theorizing that um to get the trade done, they can get Cleveland involved to get Drummond to Toronto. Okay. Um, because Toronto has been rumored to have interest in him. And just, I think, yesterday or a couple of days ago, um, Tim Bontemps of ESPN put out, like, this is a trade deck. You know, in his mind, it could happen. And it was Cleveland getting involved. Cleveland gets, like, a second-round pick or something. And then Drummond goes to Toronto. And then Lowry ends up in Philly. I love it. The other good thing about that, too, is um, it does sound more and more that Drummond may be on the move via trade. But I know a few weeks ago, like we were ear- I think I think it was with uh, Marty on, on the pod. We're eerily talking about uh, the idea of Drummond being a guy who gets bought out and goes to the Nets as well. And, and it's really annoying that they end up with a, a decent center for nothing because that's really our biggest advantage right now. And not that Drummond can handle Embiid, but still like. It's yeah. a better alternative than what they have. How much better? Not much, but it would still just be an upgrade for nothing, and it would really be annoying. So if he gets moved to Toronto instead, I'm I'm happy just because that means he doesn't end up in Brooklyn. <laughs> the whole the whole buyout thing right now is getting really annoying. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. I'm I'm not a fan of it at all. But um, hopefully, you know, it, it, the Sixers can use it to their advantage this season because it, it's yeah, great. maybe we're gonna need it. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's everything. Um, Rob, I really appreciate you coming on. If you have anything to plug or you want to let people know where to find you on, like, Twitter and everything, um, please do so. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Um, my uh, at or handle or whatever the cool kids call it is uh, at ManoffRM. Um, not really much to plug. If you're bored to, you know, go check out my our podcast, Right to Radio. Um, you can find it on Apple and, you know, I'll continue writing and hopefully covering the Sixers. Lastoutmedia.com, stroll over to Our Words and go to Sixers and you'll find all my stuff there. Awesome. Well, Rob, I appreciate you coming on. Um, excited to, you know, cover the second half of this season with you and hopefully uh, hopefully we're clotheslining some jabronis on Broad Street uh, over the summer. <laughs> Jumping right off your back. Hell yeah, brother. All right, dude. Have a good night. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Make sure you're following us on all platforms at Process Potables. And make sure that you tune in this upcoming Wednesday on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Process Potables for the debut of our weekly Philly Sports Talk live TV show called Potables Power Hour that will be on Twitch Wednesday at 8 p.m. with a rotating panel of guests. Uh, a lot of the guys from Last Out will be jumping on with me. I'm sure we'll get Rob on at some point, plus a lot of the hosts that you know from uh, my series of podcasts, and we'll have guests as far as experts from all these sports. We're doing betting content, uh, five for five Philly stuff, which includes the union uh, for anybody who is uh, always harping about 
there needing to be more union coverage, we will definitely be covering the union this upcoming season as well. So make sure you check that out. Thanks, everybody, for Rob. I'm Dan, and trust the podcast. Thank you.